Hello and welcome to Shame Spiral. I'm Ellie Krimendahl, a psychotherapist turned comedian, and this is the podcast where I low-key exploit my therapy skills to interview guests about all things shame. I was so excited, so freaking excited to spiral out this week with Joel Kim Booster. You know Joel, you love Joel. If you don't, what are you doing? What are you even doing? Go binge all of his work immediately. I've been a fan of Joel for a long time. From a distance, now that I've chatted with him in person, my level of JKB standing has only elevated. He is a stand-up comedian. He is a writer. He's an actor. He's so prolific. He wrote, produced, and starred in the 2022 iconic queer film, Fire Island. He has a Netflix special called Joel Kim Booster Psychosexual that you can stream right now. He appears on the new show, Praise Petey. He was on Loot. Big Mouth, Search Party, The Other Two. So many things that I love. He's done them. Joel Kim Booster, he is the best. We had such a great conversation. Um, my little shame spirals for this week. One quick one is about this episode because in two parts. The first part is that I, like whenever I interview someone where I'm already quietly a big fan. I always just, I don't know that any of you can tell, but I can tell listening back that I am just like a little less loose because I am secretly so excited and want to make a good impression or whatever. So I I was just cringing shamefully a little bit about that listening to it. And then related to that, at the end of the episode, you'll hear, I just kind of blurted out, I'm a big fan. I love your work. And then I immediately sort of spoke to the internal process I'd been going through around that where I was like, I know you're not supposed to say that because it's not cool. You're supposed to be like, whatever, like we're peers or whatever, even though it's like, no, it's all so dumb and silly and it should be not a shameful thing to acknowledge how much you love the work that someone is putting out into the world. And I thought, I think that naming it would diffuse it, but then no, no, I immediately shame spiraled. I was like, why did you do that? You should have just continued to try to play it cool, but I didn't. So whatever, I'm leaving it in the episode. And that's all I have for today. I'm so excited to share this episode with you. So without further ado, let's start spiraling with Joel Kim Booster. Shame. Burning in my brain Always in a frame And I've only myself to blame Shame Wishing I could forget my name And crawl back up from where I came I'm going down the spiral once again Shame spiral I'm curious about how you feel right now, knowing that we're about to talk about shame, get all into your shame. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I am not a shame-based person. Um, I don't feel a lot of shame um, in my life. And I think that comes from growing up very, very Christian and feeling a lot of shame as a child and like really 
the sort of basis for all of my emotions as a child was shame, um, as I'm sure a lot of evangelical, former evangelical people can attest to, um, that a lot of things in our house were really based around like shame, um, shame of sex in particular, I think. Um, and so I think as like an overcorrect, uh, for that, I really became this sort of non shame person in my life um growing up like as as an adult like i i really made a concerted effort to just not try and not feel shame or be ashamed of anything that i did um so it's it's actually it's going to be an interesting conversation today because it is hard for me to muster up like shame although there are a few moments i think in my um adult life that i definitely have some shame around that we can talk about yeah that's so, I mean, yes, religious based shame is so real and so powerful. And yeah. then especially when you're queer, it's just icing on the cake. Yeah. Um, how did you like, what, at what point kind of, is there sort of a demarcating moment or time period that you think of as like, when you really became aware of the, of the prevalence of shame as this like foundational thing and then kind of started the process of like releasing yourself from that grip. And how did you do that? I'm so curious about that. Like too. when I came out, I came out in high school famously, <laughs> uh, was outed by my journal, my own journal <gasps> in high school. Um, I'd been out for a year, uh, at school my junior year. And then my senior year, my parents read my journal and they let, they read like, all of the things that I was doing, I was like hooking up with guys, I was drinking, I was smoking, I was partying, you know, and th and this was all kind of a big shock to my parents. But it was almost a gift in a certain way, because it just sort of, I didn't have to come out, you know, I didn't, they just, they saw everything. And it was a huge blow up in my house, like it, it, it upended my life in a, in a major way, I ended up moving out of the house. I've talked about this on so many other podcasts, which is why I'm sort of giving you the, the the Cliff Notes version. But I ended up moving out of my house my senior year of high school and not really talking to my parents for um, until I was in college, basically. And that was really the sort of demarcation line of, of like when I went from a very shame-based person to no shame because suddenly I didn't have anything to, to hide, you know, like so yeah. much of my shame was around secrets, I think, that I was keeping from my family. And once I didn't have any secrets from my family, and specifically once I wasn't living in their house anymore, uh, especially, I suddenly realized that I could let go of so much of my shame mm -hmm. um, and I could just sort of fully embrace who I was becoming as a person and who I wanted to be. And so from really like freshman year of college on, I was in a very big exploratory phase in my life where I just said yes to everything that I wanted to do um, and sort of let go of all of the shame that I would normally feel around it um, growing up in a very deeply religious household. Evangelical, that's like, yeah. I can't imagine. It's pretty intense. Um, it's pretty intense when like, not only is it just shame, general shame around you shouldn't be doing this, but it was shame of like, you shouldn't be doing this or you will go to hell, 
You know, it was like (laughs) the stakes felt very high at a certain point in my life because not only was I like trying to pray the gay away every day, every week in church, um, but the stakes felt very high because I was like, oh, if this, if I do not excise this part of myself, then I'm going to hell. Um, and then it's, it's, it's interesting because so I moved out of my house when I was, um, 17, moved in with a friend after some couch hopping situations. And I ended up moving in with the Methodist pastor in our town. Um, and he was very religious, but very, um, liberal, very progressive. And, um, basically that whole year that I was out at school, but not out at home, I had a very deeply held belief that I was going to hell. That like, I could not hide who I was anymore. I could not hide my desires. I could not suppress my desires anymore. But by living them, I was going to hell, you know? And I was like, well, I might as well just enjoy my life here on earth as as long as possible. But eventually I will be going to hell. And that is such a dark thought for a 17-year-old to have, I think. Even in the midst of having so much fun for the first time in my life, I there was just this dark cloud hanging over all of it because I was like, well, I'm certainly going to hell for all of this. And moving in with him, the pastor, they sort of caught wind of this and sat me down and was just like, hell doesn't exist. God doesn't work that way. You're not going to hell. And that was really the beginning, I think, of like letting go of a lot of shame was like having this person in authority, religious authority, tell me straight, look me in the eyes and say like, God does not give a shit about this. You're not going to hell. Hell doesn't even exist. Um, Was really powerful and really like sort of life altering for me because suddenly I was able to let go of a lot of the residual shame that I was feeling from my religious upbringing and just fully live my life with joy and not worry about where I was going after I died for the first time in my life. Um, you know, it took 18 years for me to let go of that uh, because it was such a, it was so heavily emphasized, be good and you'll go to heaven, be bad, you'll go to hell. You know, that was the basis for all of my thinking for so long. And to let go of that, it was a real paradigm shift in my life. And I was able to sort of really embrace um, just like all of my, all of the things that I, I used to, that I, I had always wanted, but had always felt ashamed to want. Mm-hmm. Um, so it took, and so it took a long time, I think, for it to like reach a, a point where I could feel shame again, because it just all felt so good mm-hmm. for the first You know, like going into college and like experiencing college the way I wanted to experience college. And then it wasn't really until like after, like I I would say like the things that I felt the most shame about in college while I was like sort of experiencing this rebirth and exploration phase of my adulthood was like I I felt really um, ashamed of being too like thirsty i guess uh, for like <laughs> i i really was somebody who experienced a lot of um infatuation and would act on that infatuation in college in ways that were a little over the top mm-hmm. i would say i was a very emotional person i'm a deeply romantic person and so i had all these uh infatuations with guys in college that i would really like go full tilt on mm-hmm. and i think like 
being rebuffed or being sort of like um being rejected you know you feel shame at your own feelings i guess like yeah. that's that's one part of it but that was really the only shame i was feeling in college was like embarrassment at my own behavior uh like my own thirst, I guess, is probably the best way to put it. Yeah, that's so relatable. And it's also, it, there's a way where that's hitting me right now, hearing it in the context of everything you said prior, that like, that's so beautiful because it's like, that's what a young person should be feeling shame about. It's not like I'm a deeply yeah. evil fucking horrible person it's like i love too hard i acted like crazy like that's appropriate and it's like you were finally getting that have that right of passage and it's a tempering influence right like it's a tempering influence like that's when that's when shame is like sort of helpful to sort of hold you back from acting like a complete crazy person Totally. like shame is not all bad i think like having some shame about your behavior is totally healthy and i'm sure that is a, a conclusion you've reached many times on this podcast I think about it all the time. And yeah, it comes up a lot because it's, I feel like there can be like a reflexive um, idea that like all shame is bad or something. And I agree. Like there are times when it's so, I've talked about this before, but I think for me where where it was the most useful in my life is um, I'm in, I've been in recovery for a long time. And like part of what finally got me to get sober was having to sit with some of the things that I did prior to getting sober that were very shameful in an appropriate way. Like I should not have felt good about those things. It was useful for me to have to sit with that. So yeah, I totally agree. I grew up Jewish and like, I know very little about Christianity, evangelical Uh life. Like all I know is from reading. It's all very intellectual. Um, Yes. So I'm always interested. I'm fascinated by this. Like when, when that, pastor told you hell wasn't real like were you so ready were you so ready to receive that that you believed it right away or was it hard to really take that in no i mean it was a really tough paradigm shift for me to accept because it was the basis like i said of like my entire upbringing yeah was this this fear of hell um was so strong in me that like i i think that and it's funny because other people had told me this before or said something akin to this, um, you know, like people who and the thing is, is I was always being told by it by like casual Christians or people who weren't really spiritual, but were just sort of had this idea that God is love and like, mm-hmm. oh, no, 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 like God is love. He would never do that. But it was always from some rando who in my mind, I was like. Well, you're going to hell right along with me, bitch. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're totally. like, who are you? Who are you? You know, um, you're, you don't, you don't know God the way I know God. And mm-hmm. trust me, like, I know him and he's sending me to hell and he's sending all of us to hell. So buckle up. You know, I would just, it was, it was always some random 17 year old girl, um, in my creative writing class who would just like, you know, try and convince me of this. But because he was a pastor and he was someone in authority, I think, and like had come at it from like a very biblical point of view, like, um, you know, Jews, I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, don't believe in hell either. Mm -mm. And like, it's just not something that exists in your theology. Mm -hmm. And 
and the, and his and the his theology is 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 sort of connected to that in that like there is no biblical basis for hell there is no like all of it is misinterpretations or projections onto the text and things like that and like there is just no like hell is mentioned in revelations and that is it mm-hmm. and hell and for a lot of people's in a lot of people's interpretation of it is sort of like it is not a real place. It is sort of a metaphor for the end times. And and like a lot of people could say what we're living through right now is hell and the hell that they're talking about in Revelation. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And so hearing that and hearing it co- and hearing it spoken about through a biblical lens like that really was the thing that convinced me because not only was it just someone in authority of spiritual authority of spiritual note of someone who would like who, you know, I learned to really early to trust pastors, like pastors know. And so that was not something that was like immediately excised from me when I left my family's home. And so to hear it from him and to hear it from like a biblical point of view was really um, the thing that sort of changed the course of my life in a big way because it, it, um, it convinced me, you know, and it wasn't just some, you know, random 16 year old girl with flowers in her hair and you know hippy dippy you know love bullshit it was like this is in the bible um and it was so it was difficult i would say i'm like i'm you know agnostic leaning atheist now but at the time like when you're indoctrinated into religion for so long of so much of your life at the beginning and specifically you know evangelicalism like that they really get your hooks in you and they really had their hooks in me and so even it was a slow transition even after this conversation um with pastor tim was his name um it took a long time for me to slowly sort of excise the religious ideas from my brain and the way in which i would apply them to my life like i i still believed in god i think um for several years after and i still sort of like would vaguely want to live my life according to the way in which I thought, you know, the Christian God would want me to. And it just took, it was a slow burn to sort of like remove that part of my brain, um, <laughs> you know, and just and throw it away and, and not think about it anymore. And I, I certainly don't think about God very often anymore. Um Although sometimes I do, sometimes I am like, sometimes it creeps back in and it is like in the middle of the night, I'll be lying in bed and be like, am I going to hell? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it creeps back in. That's so real. At the most random points in my life, like I will like, like sort of like shoot up in the middle of the night and be like, I'm going to hell. Uh, And then sort of have to like shake it off a little bit. But it is something that was I wrong about all of what if I was wrong? Yeah, exactly. What if I was wrong is a a big uh, scary thought to have in the middle of the night. I think because like, and it's so funny because it happens when I'm happiest too. I think like I'll be like sitting in bed, nominated for an Emmy, sitting next to my partner that I love dearly and be like, well, all of this can't this there has to be a catch and the catch is hell. Um, oh my god i'm dying yeah i feel like psychologically that makes so much sense too because it's like deep down even though you've worked through all this stuff when something is so foundational and embedded like that as you're saying it makes sense that it would creep up like 
I can't, I don't deserve this level of happiness. Like I must be punished for this, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's so, I, it makes it seem, it could seem counterintuitive, but I feel like it's makes so much sense that that, that would happen when you're happiest rather than like when things are shit, when you kind of feel like you're in hell already, you know? Yeah. I always felt so bad. Like people sometimes would tell me I was going to hell um, when I was a kid because oh I didn't grow up around a lot of Jewish people. I grew up in like the middle of the country. Right. And I was always like, um, I mean, there was a lot that I struggled with, but that wasn't, I felt so confident that there was no hell. And I remember always feeling just like, I feel so bad for like, for you, Crystal, that you think there's a hell and that maybe you're going and I'm going like, that's so uh, quaint and sad, <laughs> Yeah, know? but it's sad. It, I cannot imagine feeling like that was a certainty. Like, did you have a picture of what it would look like when you were there? Yeah. It, it, I was literally just thinking about this, right? Because I was, I was just thinking as you were speaking about like what your conception of hell must've looked like compared to mine. Cause mine was a very detailed picture of torment and, hellfire and you know it starts off at when you're a kid as like a very literal sort of like dungeony sort of connected to everything we see in like greek mythology you know of like um it's a it's a uh a hellscape and there are demons that are like flaying you and torturing you alive and you can't die um and that was like that was hell as like a kid that's what i that was like what i was envisioning as like an eight-year-old um was like being flayed alive by a demon in um a cave basically was what hell looked like and then hell as you grow up as like i i came to understand it even more from like a theological standpoint was just like basically it is your worst nightmare lived over and over and over again for the rest of your life and it became more existential it became less like of a physical place and more of an existential idea of like torment over and over and over again for the rest of your life and not even like being connected to a physical body but just being like in um just like hell like not like you know not like tartarus like on xena you know like i think like xena warrior princess had a lot to do with my my conception of hell growing up because like she would go to the underworld a lot and i was like oh that's what it that's what it must be like um i love that so much and then and then it became slowly more of a metaphor i think for torment and hell and unhappiness and things like that um as i as i came of age as a as a teenager and that was more so what i was worried about but like honestly I, I think I was giving God, a, I was giving Christianity a little too much credit with the, I, like, I was doing their work for them by, because I have such a vivid imagination of like, I was, because biblically, like, if you believe in what, in what they talk about in um, Revelations, like, actually hell is sort of depicted as hellfire and um, it, the Xena people got it right, you know, like the Xena people the got it right. Um, Like that is like, it is a demon in a cave basically is what um, is described in the Bible. And meanwhile, I'm over here, like really like spinning a yarn in my head about like the terror and the the torment that hell will become. And it was like very cinematic and like um, very elaborate in my head of like the kind of torture that I would, I would experience over and over and over again. And it was like, 
oh, wow, my imagination was doing a lot of the heavy lifting that like the gaps in the Bible um, sort of left. You really elevated it. Like you made yeah, it into a, it. an art film, like an arty psychological thriller, yes, whereas exactly. it's actually just garbage. It's just a garbage movie in, in exactly. the Bible. <laughs> yeah. Joel, that le- like this, I am very existentially inclined as well. And like that, the psychological torture of it all, like what taking it to that place sounds infinitely worse to me than like imagining yeah. being flayed by a demon. I mean, that is that is the nightmare to be trapped in a prison of being haunted by your worst fear. That's yeah. so scary. Oh my God. <laughs> That's so fucked thank up. Thank God it isn't real. Thank God. It, thank, thank you, God, for not making hell or whatever. I'm so, Hell, you know, it's so interesting too, because like you don't need hell to be filled with shame as a young queer person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the middle of the night when you just said that I had like one of my, one of my most um, impactful memories that comes back to me sometimes is um, as a young, like closeted queer person is like being in the middle of the night. I would just um, have these moments where like, I would kind of wake up and, and just suddenly be like, I'm gay. (laughs) And then then would be like, and it's evil. It's so wrong that it's evil, but it wasn't at all connected to anything religious. It's so, I'm just having this thought for the first time right now, as we're talking about this, that like culturally, I think in some conservative Jewish families, this is obviously not true for all, but it's almost like hell is your family's expectations. (laughs) Like that's the hell. (laughs) But maybe to the same similar degree, because that was like that felt like hell, like the the level to which I knew I would shatter them because their whole world was what they wanted me to become mm-hmm. was like I mean, it, it it was like the ultimate psychological torture thinking about that. You know, it's so interesting, like how many iterations of that kind of shame and torture can exist for young queer people with or without a religious grounding. Yeah, I think like there's so much just inherent cultural shame around homosexuality and being gay and this idea that we're all sexual deviants stayed with me and is like sort of connected, like it it is something that I have to fight and have had to fight um, from sort of butting up against my own ideals and and uh as a as a sexual person like i i i feel like um the idea that we're all sexual deviants has always been this this thing that's that hangs over all of the sex that i've been having you know and it's like mm-hmm. oh god am i proving them right because i am such uh, a sex forward person and i have a lot of sex and like oh my god is the amount of sex that i'm having and my desire for sex does this does it actually prove them right that I am a, a little deviant, a little deviant boy? Um, mm. And then you sort of have to like follow the the logic there. And in order to save yourself, or in order to save myself, I've sort of been like, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with being a little deviant? You know, like what is 100%. the end? Like, what am I? At, what what does that actually mean? What does it actually mean to be a deviant? And is it so bad? 
you know, like I, I think I just named my next standup special and <laughs> like, I um, love it. You heard sexual it. Sexual deviant, first. little deviant, little deviant boy. Sexual deviant boy. <laughs> yeah. I love that framing of it. And it's, I, I totally relate. And I, I feel like there's a, a whole process of kind of shamelessness, kind of what you were maybe similar to what you were talking about when we first started talking about like going in the opposite direction, like leaning in uh, toward all of that. You know, I remember when I was like, you know, young and I, I moved to the Bay Area and I was just kind of like really embracing like the deviance. Like I was just like going to be like young and queer and doing the most perverted things and being wild. And I was like, this is great. And, um, and then, yeah, I've had similar thoughts too that creep in. And it's, what I always think about now is kind of like, yeah, we're all deviants. Like being a human is being twisted and fucked up. It's impossible to make sense of the, of what it means to be alive and it fucks everybody up and that can be really playful and great. And people who are putting that on queer people and trans people, it's all just the disowning of their own fullness of, mm -hmm. of existing. Like, like they are, di they're disowning their shame because they cannot tolerate the fact that like everybody, it has a spectrum of desire and interest yeah. and is, is when you can't own even a shred of that, it's like, you have to disown it because it's too uncomfortable. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, fine. We are, yes, I own like my deviance, which is actually extremely normal. Like the reality is that it's extremely human and banal to be deviant and kinky. And like, it's, it's sad that <laughs> it's kind of like how I feel about Crystal telling me I'm going to hell. I'm like, it's kind of sad that you like don't own what you really want, sir. That's just unfortunate for you. <laughs> um, Okay, let's do a little pivot. We're going to play okay. the shame game. So I'm going to present to you a couple scenarios where I want you to think about which one might lead you to a bigger shame spiral. Okay. And then, and then we'll kind of debrief. Okay. These are a little bit rough. So you're on tour, you're on like a, you're doing stand up. you're in the middle of your tour and you're having a very rough morning. Like it's just nothing is going well and you just woke up on the wrong side of the bed and you're in like, you're just, you're kind of in like your worst self, that kind of energy. And you're running late for some interview you have to go to. You're fucking exhausted. You haven't had coffee yet. Do you drink coffee? Uh, very much. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. So you have not had a drop, like your hotel or whatever. You like didn't, you couldn't get any. So you're in that state as well. And you find a coffee shop right by where you're supposed to do this interview. You go in, you're like, thank God, I'm going to get some coffee. And then you order it. And they don't take cards. They only take cash. And you have like barely enough money just for the one coffee. You do not have money to tip. And you feel awful about that. Um, and so, you know, there's this like young-ish kid working the who's the barista. And you just completely own it. You're like, I'm going to be transparent and real. And you're like, listen, like I don't carry cash. I don't have enough money to tip you. I feel so bad. I'm so sorry. And he like does not accept that and is kind of a dick about it. And mm. he's just like, yeah, I'm sure you don't have, I'm sure you don't have money to tip. Like, of course. Yeah. I, 
right, I believe you, like such a little bitch about it. And then you're like, okay, it's a lot. But then you kind of try to joke with him about it, like diffuse it. And then he gets even, he gets like fully rude and um, kind of says something that triggers you. And then you, in that triggered state, say something very rude and out of character uh, because it's just feels like such an injustice, you know, like he's treating you like this person who doesn't tip. <laughs> and, and then that's it. You go, you do your show. But then this kid makes a TikTok about it. And it's very like Joel Kim Booster doesn't fucking tip and said this insulting thing to me about like how hard I was I working anyway, making his coffee. And it's like goes viral and you have to deal with that. Um, and this kid is like unhinged, but it doesn't matter. It's out there, you know? So that's scenario one. Woof. Okay. Wow. I know that's bad. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Scenario one's bad. Scenario two, also bad. So same basic premise. You're on tour. You're somewhere in like the middle of the country, like very deep Midwest. And you're also, you're having a terrible day, but in a little bit of an escalated way than the first scenario. Like maybe there's something going on with a friend or like your family. And then on top of that, like right before you started your set, your bank reported that there was like fraud. So you're like really stressed about like canceling your credit cards and you like haven't had a chance to do it because you had to go on stage. So that's like the state. Oh, and then you're, you bomb, like your set goes terribly. You're just not in a good space. And also audience is like, you know, not with you. It's bad. So that's the setting, the emotional setting and circumstances. And then after the show, like you just want to get out of there. You want to go deal with the bank thing. You want to check in with your friend. And this young queer boy like kind of comes up to you and like clearly wants to have a whole moment with you. But, but he has like bad boundaries. Like he's like really in your face, not picking up on your, you're nice at first. He doesn't pick up on your social cues that like you've said, hi, you're nice. And then you need to go home. And it's like really a lot. And then that triggers you. And you're like, dude, please, like I need some space. Like, why are you not getting this? And then his face falls. He starts crying. And he's just like, I like drove from Kentucky to see you. Like I saved up money for like months to come see you. You were my hero. And now I just see you're just an asshole. And then he runs and you're like, wait, to repair it. No, he's out of there. Now that does not go viral or get any. That's just something you have to sit within yourself. Wow. I don't know. You you don't know me. It's it's crazy. I don't like you don't know me at all. But both of these scenarios are, are like perfectly crafted to be my hell. Like exactly. Really? Yes, you are. You are hitting on so many of my pain points as a person wow. and as someone who struggle uh, who struggles with being a people pleaser to the nth degree. Like it is crazy. I, and, and like I kind of want to break down 
but it feels like both of these things have happened to me too because really? like oh no <laughs> in some in some regard like here's the thing i i'm going to admit something that i'm actually deep i'm i'm like shamed of to admit which is that like on like with some frequency not like every day or anything crazy but i do name search myself on twitter sometimes just to see and i i contend that the thing is is like if you knew a bunch of people were talking about you behind your back essentially like and you had a way to dip in and see what they were saying like wouldn't you want to do it you know and it's and it's all positive the thing is is like i am so deeply broken that like i just dig through them to find the nastiest meanest shit that someone has to say about me like i'm scrolling 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 past every compliment like does not uh, do not absorb do not absorb a single compliment that you have ever paid me online if you're a random internet stranger. Because I'm like, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. But where's the nasty shit? And so I remember <laughs> You're I remember like, that's this what one I'm looking tweet. for. <laughs> this is like from years ago, and it still has not left me. And I I obsess uh. over it to this day. Was this guy saying that I was the meanest and rudest person that he'd ever met? the rudest and meanest gay guy um that he'd ever met and this was in chicago back when i lived in chicago and he said and it it was a whole conversation because somebody like responded and was like that doesn't sound right and he was like no like my friend used to work at a bar that he would perform at all the time and he was always so rude to the wait staff and the the bar staff and and felt like he was so entitled to all this shit and like thought he was such hot shit and blah 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 which i the thing is is that it's just patently not true like i have bad days like everybody i'm fucking bipolar like there are days that like i really struggle to to keep my shit in gear but like the bar that he said that he was that his friend worked at like i never performed at Um, And so, like, I don't know if he's confusing me with someone else or just straight up getting it wrong. But just like anyone taking the wrong impression of me, I work so hard. I work so hard to make sure that that there is just not a story to share about me in that regard. You know, like I'm I'm pretty like kind to all service employees that I deal with, except I will say sidebar quickly. The only people that I'm ever like pretty blatantly rude to and egregious to that could ruin me is um tsa the tsa Uh, (laughs) like i feel like it's sort of like a cab includes the tsa so you can be rude to the tsa like like i think you get a pass with the tsa and i think most people would agree tsa has had to call their manager on me there they've called their manager on me because i've been so insane to them like i remember there was this one time they threw out my hair gel and all i said was like can i was like thank you for your service you're really keeping the sky safe from my like (laughs) from from my hair gel um which is like pretty tame i would say like in in comparison to what they get but it was just like this guy like called his manager it was crazy i've said insane things i've like been very very rude to tsa and i am only a little bit ashamed of that but beyond the tsa like if you're a barista if you're a waiter if you're like some like anyone like i try to be pretty on the level and like pretty chill and and kind because i don't want stories like that happening and getting out and so i i would say that the the first story would probably send me into a bigger shame spiral because it it was public and got out there and was sort of 
not really capturing the spirit of the conversation that I had with the barista or capturing the spirit of the moment that I was having with that barista. But it would definitely, because the thing is, is like, people want to believe that they know you, that people want to believe that they get like a snippet of a story about you. And that is who you are. Like once that goes viral on TikTok, like that becomes a part of the the narrative, the mythology of who you are as a known person in the world. Yeah. And that's really hard to undo. It's really, really hard to undo. And it's similarly hard to undo when like that kid in the second story now goes and tells all his friends what an awful person I am. And that becomes like mm. the sort of underground mythology of my life and of who I am. And that's equally scary. But unfortunately, if that barista has got a following on TikTok, it's, it's m- much more far reaching. And I will say like, it is, it is really tough. Like after the movie came out, like it was pride. It was Pride Month, so I was going to a lot of Pride parties. And it was like, it was a lot that first year. It's died down considerably, like, since the movie's been out for over a year now. But like that first year, it was like, it was really tough to be like in spaces. I remember I, my phone got stolen at a Pride party in San Francisco. And I was like frantically with my boyfriend. I was like fucked up on drugs, looking for my phone on the ground with my boyfriend and people just like swarming me being like, can I get a picture? Can I get a picture? And I remember I had like one on the line moment where this, this group of like guys came up and was like, can we get a picture? We love your movie. And I was like, not now. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, so freaked out. My phone was gone. It was just like, not the time. And that's probably the closest that I've come to like really snapping at somebody who was just trying to get a picture with me. Um, Luckily my boyfriend was there to be like, he lost his phone. (laughs) Like, we don't know where it is it's it's not you um to sort of smooth it out like you know full first lady duties um but (laughs) yeah it's it's a it's a it's something that i'm hyper aware of that like these people get will have like a five minute interaction with me and that five minutes sort of dictates their their view of my entire personhood for the rest of their lives you know, and that's like, that's really scary. That's really stressful because like, you just can't, like, I have to be so controlled and so like on, on my game. And there are times when I'm like, you know, fucked up or tired or, um, cycling. And it's just like not the moment for me to do that, but it takes like a great deal of energy to, to constantly be the best version of myself so that nobody ever thinks that I'm rude or mean or, you know, entitled. Yeah. I mean, that is too tall an order. Like no one should actually have to try to be their best self at every second in that way. Like in the way that means that you don't get to be a person right? where it's like every person has bad moments where they're don't behave in the ideal way that you would like yourself to behave. Yeah. And I think that I could imagine that that is so challenging for everyone, but especially if you're someone who has anxiety, who has a really hard time accepting the lack of control over the narrative of who you are, like, and the idea of people out there in the world thinking negatively of you, like that would also destroy Based on not even a pattern of behavior, but based on on one instance. Yeah. One no, bad moment. Brutal. It's it's scary. And like, I should care less. Like, that's the answer that I get when I talk to people in my position who have similar anxieties. Like, they're, the answer is always just like, well, you can't care. You can't win over everybody. It's not, it's not you. Like, 
you know, you have to stop thinking, caring about what people on the internet think of you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not there yet. I am not there yet by a long shot. Like I care so much about what people think about me. It's my, that is my biggest shame. I would say is that how, how deeply I care about what strangers on the internet think of me when I have a, such a full life. I have an amazing partner. I have a lot, a, a, a solid group of friends that love me and know who I am. And yet, and yet like, some random Brandon on Twitter will say that I was rude to them in a bar once and that's it. That's it. It's over, you know? I know. So the shame, the shame is about that. It affects you that much like that. You haven't been able to release yourself from that. Yeah. Yeah. That's why they do it. Like that they know people will feast on it and that they feel powerful. It's so I really shouldn't be revealing how, how awful, uh, it makes me feel because I, I feel like I'm giving away a lot of power right now by revealing what a weenie I am online. But that's mm. the truth. That's the truth, you know. And it's and okay. I and I should say I should like temper this by saying I I care and it does make it, it can be a day ruiner, but it's not a week ruiner, you know. Like it is something that I'm able to sort of like let go of a little bit. I'm in therapy. It's the mm. whole nine yards. Like I um. I can get past it, 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 but it will ruin my day. So if you want to ruin a day, like now you know, make how. up a story about meeting me and and disseminate it on on Reddit or Twitter <laughs> or something like that, and that's usually I'll find it. Trust me, I'll find it. I really understand. Like, okay, also a day ruiner versus a week ruiner that is worth celebrating. That's real. Yeah. Like that's significant. Because that's gross. That's great. It is. It fucking is because it's okay. Like you struggle with it through the day, but ultimately it does not define your week. Great. That is good enough. And I love that you're talking about it because I think it's really relatable and real and it takes on a different quality and set of circumstances if you're a public person. And I don't, I think I'm bet you, I don't think you're alone at all in like searching your name. And I, I think it is incredibly relatable about the process of how like you'll scroll through all these glowing fucking things, all these people you don't know who are obsessed with you. And then you get to that one nugget of shit and you're like, oh yeah, I'm hungry for that fucking shit. You know, (laughs) like let me feast on that shit. I'm just like scrolling and my mindset um, when I scroll past the compliments is always like, oh, they don't know me. This person exactly. doesn't know me. This person doesn't know me. And then I get to the mean thing and I'm like, oh my God. I, I, it's, it's, I find it impossible to just sort of wave it away with a they don't know me when I, I am waving away all positivity with that same idea. Um, yeah. so it's crazy. Totally. It's confirmation bias. It's like they're, li- they're lying. They don't know. They don't know me. They don't know that I'm. A monster and then you get to the one that's like you're a monster and you're like i know but then also it's like you're hoping you're not so it's like that's the torture yeah. it's so fu- it's such a fucked up process um yeah those were bad those were bad scenarios i'm glad that you felt like they were resonant for you yeah <laughs> um so i i asked you to bring a, a core shame story that actually happened that's been hard to let go of. Do you have one in mind? Yeah, I, I have a couple that I thought about for this, but I guess, and like, and this is really like, 
um, this is really like our conversation has sort of reoriented what I consider like my, my core shames because like, mm-hmm. um, like talking about like name searching on Twitter, like that's a daily shame, you know, or a semi daily yeah. shame, <laughs> you know, like that's probably the biggest one right now. It's not a core shame, but, um, I, I guess like, um, a, a, like a, a sort of foundational one. And I can talk about two, I guess, like, cause they're both sort of like quickish stories and they're sort of connected in a way, but like very quickly, like I, I would say like the first and like biggest shame that I remember is the first time my dad found gay porn on our computer, mm-hmm. um, which was, I remember, I still remember to this day, like how, um, <sighs> how earth shattering that day was because it was the first time, you know, I was like a pretty gay kid, like gay interests, um, a fairly effeminate, you know, like just like people, people knew like people could clock me as gay from a pretty young age, I would say. But this was the first time that my parents had anything actionable <laughs> to really like yeah. base their beliefs on. And I remember I told my dad that um, it was a prank. <gasps> I was like, gotcha. <laughs> I planted oh this God. website. I planted this website so you would find it, so you would think I was gay. Isn't that funny? <gasps> April Fool's. That's April Fool's. so crafty. That was, that's know, just it was quick really, on your I'm, feet? Yeah, that's me thinking on my feet. Improv master. Like, move over UCB4. Like, I am the Stop. one. Who should people should be studying because no. that was like some real yes and like carrying the ball, passing the ball. Um, oh my moment. god! And like, like yes, that is gay porn, and yeah. ta da! And I wanted I you to find you. it, um, Joel. Oh my god! And I bet you sold that shit so I did. well. Like I did. I sold it 100%. so well. I was laughing. Mm-hmm. I was like, "This is the new prank." I remember trying to sell it as like, "This is the new prank that's like everyone's doing at school. Everyone's planting gay porn, like false flag style, on their computer so that their parents will find it." And you know, we want you know, and be scared that their kid is gay. Like praying, we're praying on your fears. That's what we're doing. We're praying on your fears. You're scared that we're gay. Well, guess what? It's going to be a big laugh for us when we when you find the gay porn on our computer. It, it was such my, a psychotic my, thing to do. My prank is that you have to face your fears. Yeah, and then I'll exactly. laugh at you when I was correct that they were your fears. Which Did your dad – how did your dad respond? He was pissed. He was like, this is not a funny joke. Um you know, like, this is serious. Like, this is, this is not something that you should be putting on our computer. He was like, of course, worried about like viruses, <laughs> you know, like of course. access to these websites could be, could bring viruses, like all of these things. And like, this was like, this was my junior year, I think. So this was before they found out I was gay for real, before they had like the cold hard evidential proof from my journal. Um, but I, I, you know, I think it was one of those things where I think they, my parents wanted to believe that it was real, that what I was saying was real, because of course. it was easier to deal with than, um, you know, anything else. And um, I guess, like, the second story um, is also dad-related in a way. Um, this is very recent, but, like, I uh, – my dad died of COVID during oh. – um, in 2021 – 
Um, and so, and that was like really hard. I was home for a while. Um, and luckily, like my dad and I were on the best of terms, like that we'd ever been on when we, when he passed. Um, but it was still a really, really difficult time. And it was the first time I'd ever really experienced grief on that level before. I've never lost someone that I was as close to or loved as much as my dad before. And so grief, that kind of grief was really new and fresh for me. And I didn't really know how to handle it. And, you know, I remember the night my dad died. I was with my family. My my dad died during the day. I was with my family all day. And then, you know, I'm in Chicago and I have a lot of friends there. And I had been hanging out with this group of friends while my dad was in the hospital at night. You know, I would spend, you know, time with my family and then go and just get obliterated with these friends because uh, as a way to cope. And so they knew my dad had died. And my friend Donnie was like, I'm going to have people over to my house tonight. Like, let's just, you know, like, let me take your mind off of things. And so basically, they threw me a, uh, a party on the night my dad died as sort of a platform for me to get fucked up as 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 fucked up as i possibly could get um and i <laughs> i did in fact and i i have to i i have to get this out there like if you're you ever lose a parent like do as much k as humanly possible and send yourself into the most existential k-hole of your entire life like you will understand death on a level that you've never understood it before if you do all the horse tranquilizers you can get your hands on and really touch the sky um okay, it is wait. it was are you being it was, earnest it was, it was really really strange and and bizarre to like experience that drug um while experiencing grief but basically what happened at the end of the party is my friend was like do you um there were these two guys at the party and he was like, they really want to hook up. Do you want to hook up with them? And I was like, sure. And he was like, okay, we're, we're, we're starting like a little group, um, for the end of the party. And so we were going to have like, basically like a little, uh, dad's dad orgy, um, oh my God. that night. And uh-huh. the, the, the one problem was, is that this one guy wouldn't leave the party. Like it was one of those things where we were waiting for everyone to leave the party so we could commence having sex. And this one guy wouldn't leave the party. And I was like, well, what's the problem? And he was like, the guy who was hosting the party was like, that's my cousin. <laughs> and like, and I was like, well, does he know what we want to do right now? And he was like, yeah. And he thinks it's okay as long as we stay on separate sides of the bed. And I was like, okay, that's fucked up. And I like went up to this guy and I was like, hey, like, I don't know if Donnie told you why this party is happening, but my dad just died. And he was like, oh, 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 say no more, say no more. And he left at that point. So like he like somehow intuited that like this was an orgy to take my mind off of my dad's death. And I didn't need like more distractions there than necessary. I don't know. He was very respectful. But as soon as he found out my dad died, he was like, I'm gone. Um, And then we proceeded to have um, sex. And this guy, um, one of the guys came in my eye. (gasps) <gasps> um at the end of this experience and um i don't know if you've ever had um come in your eye but it's painful it does not no, feel great i had a contact in so it was like doubly uh abrasive on my eyes 
And so whatever we, we go through the motions. I like try to clean my eye out. I fall asleep on the couch. The next morning I have to like go back to my family's house and like deal with the fallout of my father's death. And I look in the mirror and I have just a giant red pink eye. Um, oh my God. From this experience. And so I show up at my mom's house. Everyone's mourning. I have this giant pink eye and they were like, what is wrong with your eye? And I was just like, I've been crying so much. <laughs> that my eye just looks like this now this is just from crying little meanwhile only one eye (laughs) i was crying out of one eye my left eye the entire time that is my special skill and um yeah my i just sort of had to like sit there with my fucking pink eye from cum um my cum pink eye and you know mourn the death of my father um and i i will say like it didn't help. It didn't like, it didn't assuage any feelings of, of grief. It did just add like a layer of shame of like, Joel, you're so disgusting. Like you can't, you couldn't go one night without like doing, being a deviant basically. Like mm-hmm. I, like that was like a moment where I was like, I'm so sex positive and so like horny as a person, but I could, but the fact that I could still manage to do all that the day my dad died made me feel like, oh, are you a bad person? Like, are you a broken person? Are you broken on a level that you previously did not understand? Mm-hmm. And I, I've, I've really like sort of come to terms with it and sort of understood that like everyone grieves in their own way. And like, for me, I just wanted to not, I, I, I just wanted to not be thinking about it. And I, I did yeah. everything I possibly could to like remove the thought or the experience and separate it from what I was going through in that moment, which was um, getting cum in my eye. But. Oh my God, this story is wild. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing it. Yeah. I feel like the idea that the noble or correct way to grieve is like, you should have been like, Sitting on a mountain. Sitting like, Shiva, yeah. Look, sitting Shiva, looking at the wind, looking at the ocean, remembering your dad with dignity. It's like, that's so, again, like just does not reflect the human psyche Mm-mm. and experience at all. And it's like, what you need to do is what you need to do. It's so unfortunate that you got cum in your eye. Yeah. But it's also extremely relatable that you were just like, I just want to escape right now. And that's yeah. what I need to do tonight. And, but that's so like loaded. It makes so much sense that then like it brought up so much shit that then you had to go kind of physically wear evidence of how you had in the very like gay way you had coped with this at your dad's (laughs) and and you're like with your family while everyone's grieving your dad. It's just, oh my God. (sighs) And again, you were so quick with the story. You were like, oh, I've been crying. Yeah, again, that is the that's the through line, right? Is that like I'm really good at lying on the spot, <laughs> which is probably something again I should be a little bit more ashamed of. But here I am. I mean, whatever. I think also it's it's like you learn that, like you learn that, especially uh, for many reasons. But definitely as a young queer person, you learn to just be really quick with uh, responses that will mitigate whatever truth seems lurking 
mm-hmm. know, when you don't want that to come out. Yeah. Um, I love that you shared that story. Have you talked about that publicly before? Yeah, I started I started um to talk about it on stage a little bit. Um, but I sort of pulled back. This is the first time I've talked about it in a couple of it's like several months, probably since like December was the last time that I talked about it on stage. It's hard to get the audience on board. I'll tell you that. Mm. It's really hard. They feel really bad for you when you say your dad is dead. And then they yeah. really don't want to go along with you on the ride of this story um, till the calm gets in your eye. Like they, um, they really, they, they say it's very much like, and for that reason, I'm out, you know, uh, <laughs> Shark Tank style. They... <laughs> They don't, they don't make it till the end. Uh, and that's my fault. I probably need to tell it, you know, in a funnier way, but I'm still yeah. writing jokes around it, I guess is the, the yeah. answer. I mean, I hate when people don't come with you, but also I hate when it's because like, you know, you say something sad, like you're talking about your dad's death and then you can immediately feel that it's going to, you're going to have to haul everyone over your shoulder and like drag them yeah. up. And it's like, don't fucking feel bad for me in this way that is like I feel like there's been like a shift maybe with um I don't know if it's like post pandemic or like generational but I've I feel like in the last year I've noticed that people sometimes almost have like too much a- empathy or in the audience where mm-hmm. I like I want them to have less empathy and just yeah. come and trust that I wouldn't want to take them there if I wasn't okay with being there. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know what that is. Yeah. And that when they don't come with you about like, once the story gets to like the come in your eye and like the orgy. And one of my favorite parts of the story that we didn't debrief is that you successfully used your dad's death to get the orgy to happen, to get that cousin out of there. So real. I love that so much. Oh my god. Well, and it's so crazy because he like instinctually understood how important this was to me. Like, yeah, he was like, oh, it was it was almost as if it was like, oh, it, it's your dead dad orgy. Like that's something that everybody does. You know, yeah. <laughs> like I, a universal yeah, yeah, yeah. experience for gay men is like your dad dies and then you immediately have group sex. Right. And he's like, oh, now I see what this is. And obviously, my cue is to go because. <laughs> That is not a part of this structure, this very well-worn structure. <laughs> that is incredible. I also have to ask you, like, when you were saying about the K and, like, the process, the, like, existential journey you went around in terms of grief and death, were you, like, was that really, like, healing and significant for you? Yeah. No, it definitely was. Like, I think, like, um, you experience, like, Sometimes when you do enough K, like this sort of ego death and you dissociate and you're sort of able to separate yourself from whatever you're experiencing in that moment. And for me, like the dissociation, I was able to sort of separate my feelings of grief with my feelings of shame and like my feelings Mm. of fear about like, you know, wondering where my dad was or if he was anywhere at all. and if I'd ever see him again and being able to sort of the K was able, uh, was, was sort of helpful in me divorcing myself from those fears and those Mm. anxieties and really just being able to experience like sort of a pure 
grief about the loss and not worrying about mm. the, all of the other things surrounding it, like the where and and the whys, and just experiencing wow. the grief. Yeah, like it it helped you be able to just kind of go like cut through all that and go to the epicenter of it, and then like feel yeah. in that. That's so interesting. I've been hearing about like people doing ketamine psychotherapeutically and like yeah. spiritually. And it's so interesting to me because when I like I got sober so long ago, like 13 years ago, and also ketamine was like a very different thing. Like back when I was doing drugs, like it was like yeah, my yeah. only special experience K. of it. Yes, it was special K. And I just remember being at like a warehouse rave and like um the only journey that was happening was kind of just like like really feeling the trance music you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> that was that was the extent of it smoking a whole pack of cigarettes one by one and being like i am fire like i remember having that yeah. <laughs> experience but um it's so interesting to me how that has changed in the the current cultural moment around drugs um i don't want to take more of your time quick last couple things was there anything we talked about? I can imagine what this might be, but that you said or that I said or that came up in our conversation that made you have a little spirally feeling in the moment or you think will later if you're debriefing? Oh, um, I mean, so much. I, I think like revealing <laughs> the name searching stuff about my personality, just that about my personality is like, uh, you know, like it's so, of course, I would care, you know, and I don't like revealing sort of my weaknesses. Um, yeah, me too. You know, I don't have a lot of them, but the ones that I do have are are quite all consuming. Um, and so like, I, you know, I don't love putting that out there that I do that because it's embarrassing. It's it's cringe. But um, yeah, that's probably the biggest thing. I get it completely. I spiral all the time after anything I share ever that's vulnerable on a podcast, on this podcast, anywhere. But um, I think it's very relatable. And um, I'm going to share something with you and then it will immediately make me spiral, but I have to do it, which is that, um, yeah, I love Fire Island so much. I, it's like, I just love it. I know it's not cool at all to be like, I love your work. I know you're not supposed to do that, but I really do. I also just I'm I've been a fan for a long time, so it's so cool to oh, meet you yeah, and talk to you. you. And I just think it's so dumb how you're not supposed to like tell people that you're like into what they I do it, because it's not cool. It's such a and it's such a crazy thing that happens all the time too, where people gay guys specifically, um it they don't want to give it to you. They just want it to be like I, the, the number of times I've had guys be like, Oh, you look really familiar or like, just like not want to give the compliment. Like the number of times too, that I've heard from gay guys. Um, I think because they assume I have a much bigger ego about specifically the movie, but like, they'll be like, I don't care what anyone else says. I really liked your movie. <laughs> it's like, it has to be couched in like, it has to be a neg. It, it can't just be a compliment. Yeah. Like it has to be couched in those terms. And yeah, I've heard it. I've heard it a ton. <gasps> just to not give you too much, just to cut you down yeah. before giving you a shred. It's about power. It's about like mm -hmm. where you think you are hierarchically feeling like you 
don't want to be vulnerable or experienced as like less in any kind of way. Psychologically, it's just, it's so silly. And I just think that like, it would be so beautiful to like um, really intentionally kind of shake that up because I think it's actually so easy to just feel like everything you do is shit, even when you get really great feedback. And so what a nice thing to hear that people appreciate and connect with what you do. And I just hate all the bullshit gatekeeping around all of it. So all of that to say, like, absolutely big fan. And how do you feel now? Like as we're wrapping up and we've gone on this whole journey. Good. I, um, I don't know. I, I wonder, I always sort of leave podcast recordings confused and scared that maybe I wasn't as cogent as I would hope. Uh, Mm. And I listen back and I hear so many vocal tics and incomprehensible sentences and spiral about that and like wonder if I was funny enough, if I was interesting enough. Um, So I will be spiraling until I get until I listen to this back, I guess, and maybe even after I listen to it back too, I will be spiraling about my performance on this podcast. Again, so relatable. Do you listen? You When you're on other people's podcasts, you listen to the episodes? Occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. That's impressive to me. I never listen when I'm on other people's podcasts because, because I'm trying to avoid exactly what you just said. Like, yeah. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of like, you're such an idiot. You're inarticulate. That wasn't funny. Shut the fuck up. Like, I just want to bypass that so I don't even listen. Um, but I, it, because of the exact same thing <laughs> that would, that happens for me. But um, thank you. So given all, given that you will be suffering later, especially thank you so much for coming and doing this. <laughs> it was so nice I love to, to talk suffer with you. For my art and my art is podcasting. <laughs> so very happy to do it. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shame Spiral. You can follow the pod at Pod Shame Spiral on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all the usual places. This episode was edited by myself and Sarah Gabrielli. And original music was by Shadwick Wild. Please keep listening and rate and review if you're feeling generous. I have so many exciting guests lined up for our season. Thank you again for joining us and spiral on, but not too much, okay? 